okay. Uh, it's time to get back to Proverbs. So why don't you turn over there with me, and uh, we're going to start. We're going to start here um, in uh, Proverbs chapter twenty-three. If you want to turn over there. And uh, so we're in a verse-by-verse study of Proverbs. We're nearing the end, and uh, we've taken a little bunny trail as we are looking at um, uh, wisdom and addictions, as the title says there. Um, you, we may think of addiction as something that's uh, very modern, very sophisticated today, and the reality is there is nothing new under the sun. We see the exact same challenges, the exact same heart issues, the exact same turmoil, and family brokenness and personal brokenness in the Bible regarding addiction as we see you know, on the news nearly every night and is represented in some of our uh, families or friends that we have, people that are struggling. Um, you'll recall that Proverbs warns us as a, as a preventative measure. It, it warns us about certain people that we're going to meet in life. And uh, some of those people are... Wonderful, right? The, the man who fears the Lord, the, the woman that walks with God. And those are the sort of people we want to be with and the people that we want to be like. And then there are the bad guys in Proverbs, if we can call them that. The fool, the adulterous woman, the sluggard, the violent, the one lacking self-control, and the addict. And so we've been talking really about the alcoholic fool, or maybe if we were to use more biblical language, the drunk fool. Uh, but the point is, this is somebody who really... Uh, has um, gotten into alcohol and whose life is filled with the brokenness and turmoil that we know characterizes those that get involved with alcohol. So just by way of review, uh, notice in Proverbs chapter 23 how relevant this book is. And I, I, don't, I don't know if this strikes you, but every now and then I go, I'm reading a book that in some cases is over 3,000 years old and it is so completely relevant. One of my favorite things to do, and, and maybe you get excited about this too, is to talk to a stranger about how the Bible is absolutely relevant for the things that they're struggling with. Because if we're honest, do you think the average American thinks the Bible is the go-to source book for the problems and challenges they're facing in life. They think going to a church is where I need to go when I'm having personal problems, my marriage is having problems, my children. You know, we don't, I mean, maybe pockets of culture, that's true, but overall, that's just not true. And it, it's, it's exciting, guys, and I hope that this excites you to be called by God to bridge the gap between the truth of God's Word that you know and the problems that your neighbors and your friends and your family face, and, and show that not only is there a relevance, but th- this is absolutely amazing, there is God-ordained wisdom and power that cannot be found anywhere else for that problem, but in a relationship with Christ as comes through the wisdom of the Word of God. So I don't know if that's interesting to you or not, but... Uh, if you struggle to talk to people about your faith, that may be a thing to meditate on because it's always exciting to introduce somebody to something new, especially when they have a problem and you're offering a solution, especially when they've tried everything else and nothing else in this world has helped them. And you have an opportunity to introduce them to the Savior and to the Scriptures. So just why we're there, look at how relevant this is. Proverbs 23, we get this description of the drunken fool. Um, I, was, I was reading an article by John MacArthur on this, and he says, uh, doesn't this sound like a barroom fight? I mean, this, this has all the markings of your, your classic Western barroom fight. You know, you'll pick your favorite, uh, you know, John Wayne movie or whatever, whatever you're going to think about. And, and you've got all those elements here, right? You've, you've got the fight. You've got the guy that gets beat up. They've been drinking all day. Uh, you got woes, verse 29, sorrows, contentions, complaining, wounds without cause, redness of eyes. Uh, this guy is not in a good situation. We say, what happened to, what happened to him? Well, that's what happens, verse 30, to those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. I'm in chapter 23, verse 29. Did I say 22? Chapter 23, we're in verse 30 now of Proverbs. Um, that is the predicament, the outcome of those who are drinking too much. 
And uh, so notice the warning, verse 31. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. At last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. It's interesting, when you talk to people struggling with addiction, they will talk about this, not just the attraction to addiction, of course, I mean, people wouldn't, wouldn't give themselves over to various addictions if there weren't something attractive about it, but they personify the object of their addiction. You know, they'll talk about, you know, their alcohol is their, their always present friend. Uh, they'll talk about, you know, this, this is my comfort food or my comfort activity. This is, that, that's where I go to sort of just come down, to kind of escape. Uh, this is where I go when I've had a hard week and I just want to de-stress. And, and they talk about these activities uh, in, in sort of personified ways. And, and that's what you see here, uh, Solomon explaining to us. Uh, and yet, what happens, verse 32, it bites like a, like a serpent, it stings like a viper, your eyes will see strange things, your mind will utter perverse things, and you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea, or like one who lies down on the top of the mass, you're, you're seasick, you're, you're foolish, you don't know what you're doing, you're making uh, stupid decisions about, for example, where to take a nap. And then there's this insanity of addiction. And again, if you've ever struggled or if you've helped somebody who's struggling, this is very, very uh, relevant. Verse 35, they struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I'll do it all over again. The next night. The next football game. The next Friday night. The next weekend. Um, so... There we go. That's the Bible's approach to addiction. We see it in the book of Proverbs. And again, we take what the Bible says about alcohol, we principalize it, and we can apply it to technology addiction, pornography addiction, video game addiction, gambling. Everything's an addiction today, right? Um, So we learn things from that. And what I want to do is pick up kind of where we left off uh, last time. And uh, we were talking about how the Bible comes at addiction. So just by way of review, this is not in your notes yet, so I'll tell you when we get to the notes. Um, The Bible refers directly to drunkenness, clearly teaches that drunkenness is sin. It's the prototype biblical example of addiction, which informs all others. And um, the most common way, and this is what we focused on last time, uh, how does the Bible describe addiction? Tell me some of the language that it uses. Maybe you can look on the screen for some ideas, but but go beyond that. Talk to me about what you learned last time. Yeah, yeah. So bondage would be the main thing. Yeah, it's this bondage, slavery, master. I don't have rights. I don't have control. I'm I'm just at the mercy of my master, right? And that's how the Bible describes addiction. And if you've talked to somebody who's struggling, they use similar language. They say, "I can't stop." You know, it's like this power inside me that just wants to control me and rule rule me. And and as a as a Christian, how would you respond to that? Oh man, that's really strange. I'm sorry to hear that. No, as a Christian, you say, I know what that's like. Maybe you weren't struggling with the same addiction, but remember what we learned: sin is like a ruthless taskmaster, and we all come into the world slaves to it, don't we? According to texts like John chapter 8 and Romans chapter 6. We looked at that last time. Jesus says the one who commits sin is what? A slave to sin. And uh, and then we also saw that Paul in Romans chapter 7 calls sin a law, like gravity. You are subject to it. You cannot defy gravity. I know some people think they can defy gravity. You know, they fly through the air with the greatest of ease and all that. But no, you cannot defy gravity. You are subject to it. And that's what Paul uses as an analogy. That's what sin's like. You're subject to it. You can't change it. And uh, remember in Genesis chapter 4, God's talking to Cain. He's rejected the sacrifice of Cain. And he says, um, it's, sin's desire is to control you, but you must master it. Remember that? That's that sort of language. You're, if we're honest with ourselves, we feel like we are wrestling a power inside of us that is more than we can handle. 
That's normal homardiology, the doctrine of sin. And people that struggle with addiction are merely representing an example of what the Bible tells us sin is like. Sin is addicting. Sin is bondage. Sin is like slavery in those ways. And so uh, we, we also saw that um, part of addiction is that we were made to be dependent on God. So, so being dependent on something is not bad. That, that's part of our design. But, of course, in sin we reject that and uh, we end up not relying on God but relying on other things. Um, so we looked at some of these last time. Let's get up to speed here. Now, now this is interesting. Um, what we learn about sin in the Bible explains the culture's view. The culture says addiction is what? It's a disease. And what's a disease? Yeah, something you get, right? And you can't control it. And that sends them down a path looking at trying to help people like this purely from a medical standpoint. Now, of course, there may be medical factors that need medical care in addiction. But their worldview that says there is no spiritual part of people and their observation that it feels like a disease, it seems like a disease, leads them to that conclusion. But as Christians, we say, well, no, 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 no. Just because it feels like a control, a power that you can't control inside of you doesn't mean it's disease. In fact, the Bible says that's the normal experience of sin. But it explains the culture's view, doesn't it? Because sometimes sin feels some, sometimes sin feels more like something inside of us trying to control us than some sort of calculated disobedience or rebellion. Right? I mean, we certainly have times like that. But it, more often it feels like there's something inside of me that wants to rule me and I don't want to do it and I can't help it. Or it feels like I can't help it. And that's what Paul's talking about. Uh, listen to Ed Welch. Um, th- this is a book. It's very interesting. If you want to read more on this, this is not the purpose of our time today. But just listen to what uh, Dr. Welch says, longtime biblical counselor. If we think of sin only as overt, calculated disobedience, we will not find what we are looking for in Scripture. I'm talking about addiction. But sin is more than self-conscious rebellion against God. It is also a blinding power that wants to control and enslave us. And if that's what the Bible says about sin, that completely resonates with what we're thinking about with addiction. Now, the main difference between the cultural view of addiction and the biblical view is that the culture calls it a compulsion, an irresistible impulse. And that implies that the person is not in control or responsible for his actions. Now, now here's where you got to think like a Christian, okay? In contrast, the Bible teaches that sin is indeed slavery but that people are completely responsible for it. So, so think of this phrase that I'm going to borrow from Martin Luther. Okay, he, he coined this phrase and it is so appropriate. Responsible bondage. Responsible bondage. And that is the human predicament. We can't help but sin, but God still holds us accountable. We can't stop sinning, but God still says you're responsible. And as we concluded last week, that's why we need the gospel, right? That's why we need a savior, someone who reaches down and rescues us out of that predicament and saves us and changes us. And as we've heard uh, in Terry's study of Romans, he, he um, breaks the slavery of sin and he frees us to walk in newness of life. So Welch concludes this in large perspective indicates that in sin, we are both hopelessly out of control and shrewdly calculating, victimized yet responsible. Have you noticed that? Have you worked with somebody struggling with an addiction? And at one point you're like, this person is completely out of control. They can't help what they're doing. And then you get to know them, and they have these sophisticated routines. They have this calculated... Sorry to offend him. All right. Well, teach me to talk about sin here. In, uh... Uh, all right, so... Uh, yeah. So, so we think about that. It's, it's like, you know, we've got, um, I totally lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? <laughs> Parenting? No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you've got this person that's completely out of control, and yet they've got this routine, this ritual, this sophisticated system of deceit, of lying, of moving finances around, of, of a routine to keep their 
their behavior hidden, and you go, I mean, they're dedicating lots and lots of brain power to this. So it's like they're out of control and, and they're shrewdly calculating, to use Welch's term. And that is the insanity of the human sinful condition. Okay, so when we think about addiction, this might be helpful. We want to think about addiction through the lens of worship. So let's, let's look at, we'll just look at a couple of these together. Uh, flip over to James chapter 1. And uh, let's, let's try to diagnose some stuff here, okay? Let's see if we can get to the point where we learn how can we, uh, how can we learn and grow? How, how do we take some steps forward in all this? Uh, we talked last time about how we were made for worship of God and in our fallenness we worship other things. And that false worship is driven by our desires, our wants. So let me, let me introduce you to this. In James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, this is very helpful because what what James is doing here is he's pulling back the curtain a bit and he's explaining why you and I do what we do. And you'll see the relevance to um, 2600 Jewish food laws. Well, that's from Awana last week. Let's get rid of that has nothing to do with the lesson today. You've been wondering how I was going to connect the Jewish food laws to what we're talking about, but we're not going to go there. Okay, so James is saying, why do we fall into temptation? Well, the first thing he does in verse 13 is he says, it's not because God is tempting you. You can't blame God when you're tempted. So why are we tempted? Why do we get involved in behavior that is unhelpful? Why do we do sinful things? Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Your Bible might say, desire or ruling desire and and that's really that's really what the word means it's um we'll just call it a ruling desire this is uh, here's how i picture this the the, the word it, it means something like this it's something you want that's like has, has its hands on the steering wheel of your life it's something you want that has its hands on the steering wheel of your life. And it, it just sort of drives the car of your life the direction that it goes. And James says, if you want to understand why you're tempted, you've got to figure out what those things are. What are the things that you want in life, desires that you have, that tend to rule you, that tend to master you? Okay, you with me? You So far so good? Now, now watch how this works. He says, those desires, those wants that have the stand, the hands on the steering wheel of your heart, he says, those are the reason that you're tempted. You say, well, how does that work? Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or his own desire. So let's look at those two words here and we'll, we'll work backward to, to get back to thinking about addiction. Uh, the word carried away means to pull you in a direction, to pull you in a direction. And what's interesting is very often, tell me if you've had this experience, very often we feel like we're being pulled to do something that we know we shouldn't do. You ever had that experience? You feel like you're being pulled in a direction of something that you know you shouldn't do. And that's what James is saying. If you want something too much, if you want something so bad that it is ruling your life, that desire will motivate you in a direction, even if you know that direction may not be the best way to go. Um, we we uh, often will vacation in Southern California where my parents and most of my family lives, and so we were just out there a few weeks ago. Uh, kids love the beach, right? Body surfing, bodyboarding. Um, and uh, 
very often, when, at least in the Southern California beaches, not so much the Gulf beaches, is you get some really, real, well, when there's a tropical depression, this is not true, but, um, but just normal West Coast beaches, you'll have these rip currents, as they're called. It's an undertow. It, it's, a, it's a flow of water underneath the surface that if you're not careful, will drag you out to sea. And so the lifeguards there, they'll often have, um, uh, you know, a bullhorn or something like that. And this last time they had a, you know, the, the, the lifeguard truck with the uh, electronic speaker and they would get on there and uh, they would warn people about a section of beach or in some cases, if, if there were swimmers that would get to that section, they would actually run out there and pull them out because they knew that that was an area of dangerous current where you can get pulled against your will in a direction you don't want to go. And that's what James is saying, is sometimes our desires pull us in a direction that we don't want to go. And that, that's what gets us in trouble. So that, that's part of the, the wisdom of all this, is to recognize that when you want things too much, they may take on a life of themselves and pull you in a direction that you know you shouldn't go in. That's why, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and I hope this will be helpful, we have to moderate our desires. We must moderate our desires, even for good things. We, we, we can't be so controlled by something that it takes over our life. And you say, well, what kind of things? It can be food. It can be shopping. It can be sports. It can be being understood. It can be being happy or comfortable or, you know, anything. Anything. And all those are good desires. We're not talking about all the sinful desires, right? But just... We have to moderate our desires. There is, let me ask you a quiz question. What is the one desire that should rule the heart of every Christian person? There's one desire that should take over your life. What is it? Yeah, to glorify Christ or to be more like Christ. That's right. That's something you should be obsessive and compulsive about. Everything else should have a moderation. Everything else should be submissive to. Think about this. you got honor Christ, and then all my other desires are under that desire. So I submit all my other wants, all my other desires, to my ultimate desire to honor and obey and glorify Christ in all things. Make sense? Okay. Notice the next word. Uh, so each one is tempted when he is carried away. We talked about that. Look at the next word. And enticed... By his own desire. Now there's Drew Forney back there, uh, the Grace Bible Church angler extraordinaire. Okay, all things fishing. Uh, his son's name is Finn. I mean, just, you know, it's, right? Um, right? And it's awesome, right? It's, it's fitting. And um, so this is a fishing term. This is a angler term here. Uh, that little word enticed means to lure by deception, to lure, L-U-R-E, or as we say here, to lure, by deception. So um, so I'm going to ask our, our angler, our representative, our, our Grace Bible Church fishing, fish, fisherman extraordinaire, and I know there's other fishermen here too, so I'm not trying to ignore you, but uh, what is the purpose, sir, of a lure? To lie to the fish. You got it. Yeah, you're right. You know, that, that little um, uh, lefty's deceiver, right? You know, you got some great little lures of bass, like largemouth bass right here at Lake Granbury. And you've got a little lure. And there are people that spend hundreds of dollars creating a little device that is designed to lie to the fish. Now, you don't want to just lie to the fish, right? Like, you know, you're just telling lies. You want to deceive the fish. Ooh, that's more serious. You want to deceive the fish into thinking... What are we trying to do? Why, how are we trying to lie to the fish? Noah, what are, what are we trying to do here? What's the lure doing in terms of lying to Bobby Bass in Lake Granbury? That's right. We want to make him think that it's food. And, uh, and then what happens, Tucker, when he thinks it's food? That's right. Now, are fish stupid? Should we take a poll? Okay, so so okay, so let's assume that that fish are not just completely stupid. Um, but 
what, okay, so, so what do we have to do? We, we have to deceive the fish into thinking that that little lure is his lunch. In fact, it's the easiest lunch he's had all day because it just popped down right under the water in front of him. And you just, you know, it's like, you know, manna from heaven, right? In the fish, right? And, and yet we have to deceive him into thinking it's lunch and not realize what? It's got a hook. And what he thinks will nourish him will actually be the end of him. It will kill him. Now, should the fish know better? He's a fish. I don't know. Right? I don't know. But the point is, that's the term that James pulls and says, I hate to break it to you guys, but this is you. This is what we do. You say, how does that work? You know how it works. There's something you want. And you tell yourself all sorts of lies to justify the purchase, the acquisition, the activity, the behavior. Uh, let's pick an example. Uh, who wants to share an example of when you acted just like Bobby Bass? Come on, let's, we're, we're amongst friends here, so let's, let's think about this. Should I give an example from last night watching college football? Okay, so we're watching we're watching the the USC um, UT game. What's that? Oh, this is this is on, this is totally on me. And um, did you see the safety that didn't get called as a safety? Okay, should have been a safety. Total turn of the game. Emotional change. And uh, they did they they repl- so what happened was uh, Longhorn quarterback gets sacked in the end zone. Clearly the ball was not totally out of the end zone, in my judgment. And it should have been a safety, USC. And so they stopped it, they replayed it, and they said play stands as calls, no safety, right? And then everything went downhill for there from USC standpoint. And so Lisa and I are talking about it, and what did I say? I say, well, it's because they're playing in Texas, Right, that the crew calls it like that. And I was, see, I, I was tempted because I want my team to win, to believe lies, to justify what I want. You see that? And she very nicely said something to me about that, and it was convicting. Um, but, but you see, it, it's a stupid football game. I want my team to win, and when that desire gets too strong, I start believing lies about a conspiracy amongst the referees because they happen to be playing in Austin and not in L.A. Right? And you do that too, don't you? And so James says, the reason that we are tempted and fall into sin, you got to get this, the reason we are tempted to fall into sin is we want things and we believe lies about that situation that leads us to make a bad decision. But you, you got to get this. In every sin, every temptation, you will be tempted to believe lies. And indeed, if you are going to follow through and actually sin, right? When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In the actual committing of the offense, you had to do exactly what Bobby Bass did. You have to bite down on a lie. That's sin. So what does that have to do with addiction? When we are involved in unhelpful behavior, unhelpful activity, taking unhelpful substances, whatever sort of addiction we're involved in, there are always desires things that we want that involve deception. I mean, th- think of your classic alcoholic. I can stop anytime I want to. What's that? Lie. Um, I'm not hurting anybody. Lie. This will be the last time. Lie. Everybody does it. So what's the harm? Lie. I can't have a good time without Budweiser. Lie. 
I mean, think, I've told you before, every beer commercial is so uncreative, right? It, it's all the same. It's you can't have a good time without, and then they do all these different examples of what having a good time looks like. And the good time on the advertisement is coupled with the drinking of the beverage, and the association is you can't have a good time without, right? So that's how it works. So it may not be alcohol, it may not be heroin, it may not be gambling, but in whatever way that you're tempted, ask yourself the question, what lies am I being tempted to embrace? How am I being deceived in this? And that's why it's so important when you're struggling with sin to be in the scriptures. Because what do the scriptures do? They expose the lie. See, if you're walking around your Christian life like this, you're an easy target. You're Bobby Bass blindfolded. Because you don't know any better. And you have nothing to combat the lies that you and I are tempted to believe. And the scriptures shine light to renew our minds to say, no, that seems right, but it's actually wrong. I don't need that to have a good time. I don't need that to relax. I don't need that to be with my friends. I don't need that to feel better. I don't need that to stress out. I don't need to tune out and zone out and get involved in that to be satisfied because I have a relationship with the living God. In whose right hand are pleasures forever, Psalm 16 says. So, anyway. So, ruling desires, idolatry, replacement, training and habits. Um, We'll talk more about this in a minute, but when we think about addiction, we're thinking about our desires, we're thinking about idolatry, things that we are worshiping instead of God. And uh, I'll talk about replacement and training here in a little bit, okay? So, conclude with this uh, little quote here. Scripture permits us to broaden our definition of idolatry so that it includes anything on which we set our affections and indulge as an excessive and sinful attachment. In other words, um, don't think of idolatry as only a statue of a Hindu god that you locate in Southeast Asia somewhere and you bring it home and you put it up in your kitchen and you worship it while you do dishes. That's not the only form of idolatry. The Bible talks about idolatry in terms of a heart issue. So listen to this. Therefore, the idols that we can see are certainly not the whole problem. Idolatry includes anything we worship, things like the lust for pleasure or respect or love or power or control or freedom from pain. I mean, just think about that. Uh, Moms and dads, grandparents, uh, do you ever get angry when your son or daughter or your grandson or daughter doesn't do what they're supposed to do the first time? I'll put my hand up. Put your hand up. What is that? It means I want my children to obey the first time and I want it so bad that I sin when I don't get it. I get angry at them. I get impatient with them. That's what he's talking about. He's saying idolatry is not just a statue you bow down to. It's when you want something so bad that you're willing to sin when you don't get it. And it can be simple as as garden variety impatience over a disobedient child. Furthermore, the problem is not outside of us, located in a liquor store or on the internet. The problem is within us. Alcohol and drugs are essentially satisfiers of deeper idols. The problem is not the idolatrous substance, it's the false worship of the heart. Now, that's very important that you see that. Um, Why do people drink too much? Let's do a roundtable here. Why do people drink too much? Okay, to escape. Okay, what else? For comfort. Think it'll bring, bring them pleasure. Make you feel good. Cover up pain. Habit. Okay, so, so we see that and we recognize that is alcohol really the problem? I mean, in a sense, I mean, because that has a physiological effect on you that's not helpful. But do you see what's motivating the drinking is a heart issue, isn't it? It's covering up pain. It's comfort. It's enjoyment. It's escape. It's, right? And there are a thousand different ways. I mean, there are some guys 
that when they, when they want to escape, they don't go drink, they go to the garage. And they spend hours in the garage, disconnected from their family, disconnected from their wife, disconnected from other responsibilities. Well, it, 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 they're doing the same thing as the drunkard. They're just pursuing a different means of escape. Do you see that? But escape is the same hard issue. So, so that's, that's what's very convicting about all this is you say, well, I don't have a problem with alcohol or heroin, but we see that these are all things that we struggle with. To turn to other things instead of to the means of grace that God gives us in Scripture when we're struggling with something. Okay, so here, here's the final slide here in terms of, um, and this is probably way more than you wanted to know, but the, these are biblical categories. If, you, if you're trying to help somebody who's struggling with addiction, or you're struggling with an addiction, or you say, you know what, I'm not really an addict, but I can see that I struggle with this, that, and the other thing. It's very similar to what we're talking about. These are the seven things you need to think about. You need to think about worship. Who or what am I worshiping? You need to think about desires. Think Bobby Bass. What do I want? What am I lusting after? Think of deception. How is my desire lying to me? What about my problem am I embracing that is not true, that's leading me to do that, like the conspiracy amongst the refs down in Austin last night. There's pleasure, right? There, there's something attractive about the addiction or the video game or the, the drinking or whatever it is you're doing. There's often a substance involved, either a foreign substance that's introduced into the body or a natural substance already present in your body. So, for example, if you're playing video games too much, um, you're not putting something into your body but that activity causes your brain to release chemicals that are pleasurable that tempt you to do more than you should. Number six, habit, meaning we are creatures of habit, and if you just go through the motions of doing things over and over and over, you train yourself into that habit. Of course, there are good habits and bad habits, but in addiction, habit's always part of it. And finally, a body component Physiological aspect, uh, meaning uh, the addictive properties of alcohol, the addictive properties of a drug or something like that. Okay, now, what about Christians? Because if you've been tracking with me, and we've said that addiction is explained in the Bible as bondage, Christians are not under bondage, are they? Have you been paying attention to Pastor Terry's sermon series? Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 7, you're not under bondage. You're free to walk in newness of life because you are united with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. So how do we understand addiction in believers? Let me turn to um, the great uh, theologian John Owen. Okay, listen to this. This is, this is like the best setup. Suppose a man to be a true believer and yet he finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin leading him captive to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to duties of communion with God, disquieting him as to peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience and exposing him to the hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? What course shall he take and insist on for the mortification of this sin, this lust, this distemper, or corruption? Isn't that a great question? If you come back next week, no, 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 we won't. Um, we'll get in a little bit here with the time we have remaining. But uh, if you've never read John Owen's Mortification of Sin and Believers, you need to read this. It's been our book of the month. Uh, it's in the bookstore. It, Owen is a Puritan. He's kind of hard to read a little bit, but it is well worth your time because Owen spends a book explaining to you how you can do that. What course should a believer take when he struggles with indwelling sin? And it is, hands down, the best thing available in English. Okay, let me give you a preview. Um, okay, Bible trivia lightning round. When you become a Christian, what changes in your life? I will be your host, Alex Trebek. And um, I will merely cite down the answer. You don't need to frame your answer in the form of a question, by the way. But what happens at conversion? Okay, there is a heart change. Just shout it out, okay? 
What else? Okay, affections change. Did you say position? Okay, in what way? You're right. Okay, yeah, that's right. You're in Christ. We have a new master. New spirit. Okay, keep going. You're doing great. New creation. Notice the theme. That's right. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 26 says we, we want to honor God. We want to obey him now. New attitude. What else? What's that? Dead to sin. What else? Alive to God. What else? Okay. What's his name? Okay. Yes. We have the Holy Spirit. I won't steal Terry's thunder today. He's going to talk more about that. So we'll just wave our hands at that a little bit. What else? Power. Yes, we have new power because of Christ, because of our new nature, because of the Holy Spirit. That's right. So we have a new spirit uh, in our nature, and, and we might say, we'll just say power, love, and discipline. Very good. Okay, that, that, that's enough of a preview. That's not exhaustive, but that gets us out of the gate. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that change anything for a person who is struggling with addiction? Oh, come on, guys. Yes, thank you, Kit. Thank you. Yes, you should be like, yes, it does. It changes everything. If addiction is bondage, and Christ is freedom from that bondage, you have a fundamentally different paradigm when you're talking to a Christian about addiction. It has to be, because this is theologically true. You are a new creature. You do have a new master. You do have a new spirit. You are uh, uh, possessing a new attitude. You are dead to sin. You have new power. You are alive to God. You're in Christ. You have new affections. You have a new heart. And, And maybe the most important difference the third person of the trinity moves in to your house which is your body you're the temple of the holy spirit first corinthians 6 tells us and that changes things so so look at look at your notes here look at this i i just picked a few of these um ezekiel 36 26 the it's the text on the new covenant When you come to Christ, the text tells us that God removes the heart of stone from your flesh and gives you a heart of flesh. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes so that you will obey my ordinances. So God does spiritual heart transplant surgery when you become a Christian. And the fundamental spiritual interface of who you are in the inner man is changed. Romans 8 9, Terry will talk about this this morning. You possess the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 5, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive in Him. The old self is crucified. Romans 6 6, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are identified in Christ. That's the whole book of Romans, in particular chapter 6. And you're no longer a slave. And that changes everything. So, what is addiction in a true believer? That's my question. Do you see the difference? We can't say addiction is bondage in a Christian because a Christian is not not a slave. He's not under bondage anymore. So how do we explain that? Because... As a believer, I struggle just like you struggle. And this is where I think uh, maybe this will be particularly helpful. Now, now we're, we're, we're 20 miles away from Proverbs at this point, but I hope it will be helpful. Let's just look at, at one aspect of what addiction is in a true believer, and then we'll call it a day. 
Okay? I've been giving you optimistic notes lately, haven't I? In terms of how far we're going to get. How does, how is addiction or any indwelling sin explained in a Christian? How do we explain that? If all these things are true, why aren't we perfect? Okay, disobedience? Okay, well, Paul said, and we didn't look it up, but in Romans 6, 6, the old self is crucified. So the old self is dead. So we don't have the old nature. We have a new nature. But I'm going to put an asterisk next to your, your answer because there's something else. But we, still have the flesh. we still have the flesh. And that's... That's right. That's right. So, so Jack, well, actually, they're both right. They're both describing the same thing. It is the flesh. And the flesh is... Uh, the flesh is lots of things, but what we're thinking about here is it is a component of who you are in your inner man. It is a component of who you are in the spiritual part of you. It's called the flesh, and it remains on in the life of a believer. You say, what is it? It's the remaining presence of sin, power to sin, and the desire to sin. So let's take what, what Kit was just saying and what we've learned here and, and think about an analogy. Our old self, the, the, the person that was sinful, the person that uh, did not love and walk with God, the person that um, was rejecting God's truth, that old person that we were before Christ dies when you trust Jesus. That's what it says, right? Your old self was crucified with him that our body of sin might be done away with so that we'd no longer be a slaves, slaves to sin. That's Romans 6, 6. But why is he still influencing our life then? Well, you've heard me say this before, but I cannot come up with a better analogy. So here it is, okay? You've seen Apollo 13. That is the movie that documents the... Um, uh, space mission where we were intending to send three astronauts to the moon and there was an explosion along the way and it turned in from going to a moon mission to how do we get these three guys home alive, right? And uh, if, if you like that sort of thing and you haven't seen it's kind of an older movie, but it's great. It's awesome. Uh, the book's even better by Jim Lovell, the commander. Um, okay, so there's a so picture this. Three astronauts on their way to the moon, flying the spaceship, everything's going great. Bang! There's this loud explosion, and they, they can look out the window, and there's gas pouring out of their spaceship, and everything's going nuts, and they can't control the spacecraft. Jim Lovell, the commander, jumps into the commander's seat, grabs the controls. He's trying to stabilize this thing. And meantime, on the ground, Johnson Space Center in Houston, Mission Control, they're trying to figure out what's going on. And so they're talking back and forth, and, and Lovell, the commander, says, I'm trying to get control... And he says this, he says, it's like we're flying with a dead elephant on our back. It's a great line, and I think he actually said that. I don't think that was Hollywood. I think that was actually what he told Mission Control. Is that true? Okay. Now, let's say that I strapped a dead elephant to your back. And I said, can you walk across the room in a straight line, please? Let's say it's a baby elephant, so that at least there's some possibility that you can do this, okay? We'll, we'll get Weldon to do this, right? He's a strong football player. Um, even though that elephant was dead, would he exert any influence on your life? Nod your head. Yes, yes, he would. Uh, you ever gone to Walmart or Kroger or HEB and turned the shopping, around, shopping cart around backwards and tried to push it? It's kind of like, you know, because it's not set up to drive like that, right? And th that's what Lovell's saying. I can't control my space. And that is, it's only an illustration, but it is a way of understanding the biblical doctrine of remaining sin. Your old man, your old self, your sinful self is dead, but his carcass is still strapped to your back. And the inertia and momentum and mass that he exerts, though dead, in your life is still a very real influence, isn't it? Okay, you with me? And so when you think of the flesh, when you read in Romans, in fact, Pastor Terry's going to talk about this in Romans 8. So when you hear the word flesh, you think it's that part of me 
that remaining sin, that presence of sin, the power to sin, the desire to sin that remains on in my life, though I'm redeemed, and though my old self is dead, he's still exerting influence. Um, read a story. In fact, we had a situation at our house recently. Thankfully, this didn't happen. But um, if you cut the head off of a copperhead, can, st- can he still hurt you? Well, he's dead. How does that work? Reflex. Okay? So this copperhead is dead, and he can still bite you, can he? So don't go near the head, the cutoff head of a dead snake, is the moral of the story this morning. Yeah, and, and uh, you can Google it. The, the physiological explanation is really, really fascinating if you like dead snake stuff. But, um, but the point is, he can still hurt you, though he's dead. So though we are, our old man is dead in Christ, though we are free to walk in newness of life, though we're a new creation, we have a new heart, we have the Holy Spirit, you are still walking around, and there's a cut-off head of a venomous snake called your flesh, and he's not on your driveway, he's inside of you. That's kind of sick, isn't it? It's true. It's true. So watch out. And as we're going to learn, this is the the segue to the morning message, as we're going to learn, now that we are in Christ, now we have the Holy Spirit, the Scripture is going to call us to walk by means of the Spirit so that we will not carry out the desires and influence of the flesh. But the flesh, guys, is why, in part, believers still struggle with indwelling sin. So if you're struggling, I'm just here to tell you, that's normal. It is normal Christianity for a believer to struggle with indwelling sin. The difference is God has made provision to fight it, to conquer it, to defeat it, to not live by its influence. And that's what we'll talk about next time. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for how it helps us to think about the challenges that we face, uh, whether it's an addiction issue or whether it's just garden variety sinful struggles. Lord, thank you for the provision of Christ. Thank you for all of these things that we possess in you because of Christ. And yet I pray that we would walk carefully, we would walk wisely, knowing that Though our old man is dead, he still exerts powerful influence for evil and sin in our lives. Lord, help us to walk by means of the Spirit. Help us to use the resources that Christ gives us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And know that as we look to you, you will empower us and help us to walk in those things. Give us grace, Lord, this week. We know know temptation will happen. So might we be ready with the things that we've talked about today. In Jesus' name, amen.